Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Adrian Ramsey, and I'm your host on Talk Design. I started this podcast because I wanted to share the journey of design that I've had and that many others have had, and I find it inspirational talking to people globally about what makes design tick and what makes design create a better world for others. My journey has taken me from clothing globally, women's swimwear, performance sportswear, mountaineering, yachting, all these kind of genres where each place I would learn more and more about different specifics and how clothing can support those. Also, I've worked in innovation as a systematic innovation trainer and worked with the aerospace industry as well as the marketing industry and the design industry. And all my years of design Still my favorite is the built structure and interiors. In years of travel and discovery, I constantly look at what the emotions are that are created by the built space. I consider myself a student of design for my whole life and will go on that way. Some of the things that I do to support this is my podcast, and then workshops and masterclasses where I teach people about trends and design thinking and tours where I take people on tour with me and we go and discover different points of architecture or interior design globally. I always think that when you're passionate about something, one of the things that you should do is you should share it. And so creating the podcast was my way of sharing my enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of others and their passions around design with you. I hope you really enjoy it. And I ask you, would you please drop us a line? Tell us what you think. Tell us what got you excited. It's so inspiring when we get messages from our listeners that tell us about the things that shifted in their life because of who they listen to. And it gives me the inspiration to dig deeper and find more people that I can bring to your ears so that you live a better design life. My guest on Talk Design today is none other than DC Hillier. Now, DC, we'll get him to explain his name soon, is, I would say, very globally known as an expert in mid-century modern. He runs the podcast. He will run a podcast in the future. He runs the Instagram site MCM. There is 230 of you following him, and there's a lot more people than that just looking at his work. He's an author. He is an expert on mid-century modern. He's also got a long educational history, quite likes digging in deeply. He's studied psychology, film, industrial design. He works as an interior designer, but he also understands total furniture making. He's a man of many talents and a wealth of knowledge. DC, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Thank you, Adrian. <laughs> I would like to I, I would like to correct one thing. Go for it. You said I had 240, 230 followers. 
1,000. Yeah. 230,000. Sometimes I wish it was 230. Then I could answer every email. <laughs> That's a good thing. Yeah. Like it, it's one of those things, isn't it? Like we must end up with so many comments. And are you the guy that reads them? You're, there's uh, nobody else I, reading them with you? I, first off, it's interesting to me is sometimes you'll say, you'll just add a little glib line after yeah. your description. Oh, what a great place to put your feet up. You know what I mean? Or something like that. And that will garner some of the most unusual responses. I don't give you, I can't really give you an example, but if you end your description with a little comment, personal comment, or like, can you imagine waking up in this room? Yeah. You'll get comments like, I could imagine waking up in that room with you. Yeah. I said, how do I respond to that? Just, swipe, <laughs> keep Just swiping swipe. on. Like, no, it's okay. Uh, I, but I like the comments. The comments can be, just usually the comments are over, mostly thumbs up, usually emojis, happy yeah. face, smiley heart. But sometimes they're really insightful. You get My favorite ones are, I don't know the architect. And that bothers me that mm -hmm. I don't know. But this is such a great house and I want to share it. So yep. I always mention, if anybody happens to know the architect, please let me know and mention it in the comments. And if they do, if somebody does, invariably someone will. They'll say, the architect was this guy. <clears throat> And they'll add something cool. Check out his house in this neighborhood of that city. Right. And you say, wow, this is that. That's the house I should have shared of this architect. And I always credit them in the description after yeah. I re-edit. <clears throat> but I like the comments just because uh, it's a chance to interact. Like yeah. genuinely interact. Say something nice. People, people say, this is my favorite Instagram account. How do you not say thank you? You got to say thank They're being taking some time. It was nice he took the time. It was I nice she took the time. I yeah, love they took the time. following CM. I love following it, partly because of the entertainment value. The other mm. is that you actually give the shizzle. You tell people mm. about what it is, and if it's got any lovely bit of history to it, then you'll add that. And it's so then you move to educational. And the other is, is that it's it's an era that is in touch with so many people who would be say 50 years old plus there's still they're still finding stuff in garage sales flea markets those yeah, kind yeah. of things it's not just in collectors stores there's still stuff coming out of houses that is multi-generational from that era and you go that era goes way back into the 30s as well so yeah, yeah. it's this it's fascinating and also the number of markers in that area where it shifted and climatic conditions that allowed it to be different and all those things yeah. it was a really big growth um of partly industrialization as well through that era um yeah i i find it there's something about it that feels real as opposed to there's a lot about what we buy today or see today that hasn't stood the test of time and so yeah. when you reverse back, it, it feels real. So that to me is my joy of it. Yours my, is my way deeper. Of, <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's, it's not deep necessarily. Of course it, it is. But I think for me, okay, a friend of mine some time ago bought her first place and she was looking to put in some shelving. And I think that's fine. Practical shelving is good. But of course, the first reflex is let's go to Ikea and see what they got. Or you know what they already have. You're going to pick up the regular boxy shelving, perfectly practical, great for albums. So I said, well, let's hit the antique stores. Let's see, let's see what we can find, something a little more interesting, for instance. And there was this night, maybe 1950s, made in Denmark, couldn't identify the uh, designer. 
And here's something that's basically 60 plus years old. Uh, little brass details on it where you can adjust the shelving. Um, and I said, I, there's a saying, it's already lasted 60 years. You know what? It's quite easily going to Probably last another 60 years. For another 60. And, mm -hmm. and then it becomes my favorite thing in the world. If it's Even if it's not lovely, it's a family piece. It goes, because mm. right now there's this conundrum where Gen Xers and millennials don't want their boomer parents stuff. Mm -hmm. Like it's just, they don't, first off, they don't have the space for it. And it's disheartening for everyone because they would like to be able to take some of the things. They just don't like it. They, mm -hmm. they like the more cleaner, simpler, uncluttered look, if you will, a lot of them anyway. And I think that's the enduring thing about modernism and, and post-war modernism in particular is that you, if you go through, and I've talked about this, you go through the eras of design and you don't have to go back too far. You can go to the various move, the various styles within the Victorian movement. So you have the Jacobean revival, the, the neo-Gothic revival, things like that. There's many of them, but under the umbrella of Victorian. But those are influenced by other styles. Then you get into the Art Nouveau, the mm -hmm. late, late 19th, early 20th century. But even Nouveau, if you look at it, for all of its asymmetry and its fluid lines and things like that, there's still a little bit of the Victorian touch in there somewhere. You'll see it. Can't call it Victorian because it was a unique thing. Get to Deco. Deco becomes more industrial, but that's also a style that's been around. If you look at the arts and crafts movement, this stuff, stickly stuff was mm -hmm. hardly, hardly Deco, but it has the same philosophy, if you will. But then again, there's the American Deco. We look at the early steel modern or whatever you want to call it. Jungian style. It's, but it's still, it's beholden to previous design movements. War happens. Everything gets halted. The Danish still managed to produce all the, all the Scandinavians during the war years. But the, after coming out of that period, there was, people looked, especially in America, they looked around and they were tired, especially was, because in America there was rationing and there was, you couldn't buy new things. There was reduction in material use. And when that was eased up, all the stuff that existed prior to that, even contemporary of that period, was old and tired. They just wanted right. to break away from everything that was pre-war. Everything had to be new. <clears throat> so new, in fact, that it couldn't look like anything else. It had to be new. And that's where you get designers, especially in Europe, as soon as they came into the 50s after the cleanup and the rebuilding, they were producing things that simply, whether it was so simple as to look like a line drawing, or it was utterly unique, whether it's the French stuff, the Jean Rayer, when you get to the sort of the, the ab absolutely pragmatic you know, Pierre Genere, all the stuff that Corbusier did for Shangri-La, nothing like that had existed before. And it was also it was outside forces that were producing that, especially the French Corbusier stuff for Shangri-La in India, was that the skill set of the labor force was so limited that the right. forms themselves that, that were going to be made had to be incredibly rudimentary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do we go in with straight lines and rudimentary forms to assemble them into something unique and beautiful. And we're smart, and they came up with it. And to me, that's, I get goosebumps when I think of that. That's how you're sitting in, the, you sit in a room, and you got, I'm picturing Genre in a room, not speaking the local dialect or, sorry, language. And he's trying to explain to them how to use, or somebody is, how do you, and it was Genre, probably him, hands, as quite hands on, uh, how to use the equipment, how to make, how to yeah. put things together. And it's just crazy. And I think that's, amazing because we don't think of Shangri-La as being just a city these days because of it it's the center of some of the most important architecture and remnants of that because of, a lot of the furniture sadly 
about 2010, I think, maybe just uh -huh. before, suddenly the auction houses, high-end auction houses, was flooded with the Genre Shangri-La furniture because the official, because they were made for official purposes, from oh, board table, right. boardroom tables to, so suddenly they were everywhere, not cheap, in thirty thousand dollars. They're cheaper now because the market yep. got flooded. But I'm thinking, you know, better that than the photos that I saw of them piled up into open air warehouses, just rotting in the sun, covered what, in crap, all the for all the, you which know. happened. But, yeah, that's yeah. almost a, and got, a crime. I was going to say, I know my father would say to my father's ninety five now. But years ago, mm. he'd say, oh, he'd see a piece of something. And he'd say, oh, yeah, I remember we had those at home. I said, what happened to them? And I'd say that. And he goes, oh, we burnt them. Oh, no. <laughs> what? And he's oh, like, that's not... what we did. You know, Nothing yeah. smells as good as burning tea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and valuable furniture. Um, but you, who could have known, right? Like, <laughs> they would not have known. There's always that piece you find, like, a story of somebody. When I was running a Facebook group, prior to all this about modern design and people would post photos and it says my 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 next one woman post my next door neighbor is she's downsizing she's moving out of her house she wants to know if, if i want her lamps because she's taking all the fit, 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 fit she bought the special lamp for sometime in the 60s or 50s sorry 50s and she posted a photo of it and going oh if it's a real one you might want to get it and it was a pavel pavotinel snowflake lamp considered one of the most important lighting designs in the history of design. Like, first off, I can't believe it's an American suburb of a lesser known city. Now, yeah. as I've, I it wasn't one of the big ones because it wouldn't really fit in the hallway, but a big one is 180 to 200,000 euros wow. to get one of those. So what she had was more like the 80,000 euro bracket. I said, you have two, two things you can do here. Give her 10 bucks for it and abscond with a lovely piece of design that you can sell to an auction house. But or, or as she was with. retiring, yeah, yeah, or you, I would live with it because mm, yeah. I always think, you know, what, if I if I get tired, no, I'm not selling anything. She did the right thing, I thought anyway, and I'm a design fan and I love this lamp. That she said she explained to the woman what it was. The woman was quite shocked, and she helped her arrange to get it sent to auction. Yeah, yeah. The woman got the money. I don't know what exactly it sold for, but it was a lot more than she would got if she was selling it to the neighbor. Exactly. <laughs> the $10 item next door. Or we can take that yeah. to the tip for you. I know you don't have a car. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, uh, well, another friend of mine got a uh, a finial chieftain chair at a thrift shop. Yeah, well. And I'm thinking, you ever see, those are, let's not talk about the price. It's going to be a lot more than it was, than it paid. You got it from the thrift shop for. Funny thing is, I think he was on a bike at the time. Too, to get and to get this, would look like he was in Africa <laughs> or Asia with it on the back of the bike. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, I can man. see it now. It's so interesting, <laughs> though, that ability to identify a reproduction or a copy versus yeah, yeah. what's real and <clears throat> what is the values that are lost Let's say with reproductions copies as well, because mm -hmm. it wouldn't have, you can tell me, I'm guessing, but it wouldn't have been soon after, like it, it was soon after those pieces were made and they started to sell and they became popular, people started to either make copies mm -hmm. or some very sense soon of, after. Yeah, very soon after. So, has a couple there, of or, examples. I was yeah. going to go, yeah. there must be some that are now probably maybe more value than what they were or as high a value as the ones that they copied? 
you know what? I get asked that quite often, actually. And I'm surprised people ask me because nobody wants a copy, especially first even, off, an auction even house. Even if it is a really good one, even if it's okay, the, if yeah, I'm still waiting for that to happen. I'm still waiting to find an example of where the copy is for whatever reason was more expensive or just better auction results. Because some auction houses will not touch a, a replica. Others will say in the style of if they yes. do sell it. Yeah. Instead of saying a fake. It's one of the things like when Eames, when the Eames came up with the molded yep. chairs, the yes. molded fiberglass yes. chairs, yeah. which were, were huge sellers. There is a, like, and they came out the, the first ones came out in the early fifties, uh, just obviously prototypes before that. And there's an actually like almost a contemporary advert for the chairs, advising customers to avoid the fakes. So already within a few months, literally in some cases, fakes were hitting the market. Most wow. famous case of that, of course, it was Noel. Noel put out the Hardoy butterfly chair. Uh -huh. It's basically the leather strap. And it was, which he saw prior to the Second World War, the person in charge, uh, when he was at Kaufman, sorry, when he went down to Brazil and he saw the chair there in the late 30s. After the war, he thought that'd be a nice thing to market, simple production and a great piece of furniture indoor or out. So he loved the versatility of it. And as, but what everyone else manufactures, what they loved was how easy it was to fake. Noel made sure that his had certain unique design features, like slight bend at the top of the two hoops at the top. Yeah. And because there were so many copies out there, the, the originals are so rare because they stopped selling them after less than a year. They simply they said, "There's no point. We can't compete. There's so many fakes." Because um, there's so many fakes. So wow. many fakes. So a genuine first production, only production. Noel butterfly chair. I I don't think I've seen one come up. Not since I've been in this. But yeah, wow. I know there's some in museums, but yeah. yeah, no fakes are just part of the game. And knowing how to identify them, sometimes it's easy. If you look at a Plycraft fake Eames chair, well, yeah. at least they weren't copying them directly. They were making in the style of, but at least it was uniquely different. But so what happens? Nowadays, what happens with copyright on things like this? Like, what's the go? Okay. Like, how does somebody create their amazing chair, like the Eames, and and then? How do they protect themselves against the fakes? It's almost an impossible game. Uh, one of the things they were hoping for, I think England toyed with the idea briefly, Britain toyed with the idea briefly that if you were, you have to prove if you're going to sell from the manufacturer that you were selling originals, fakes, they were basically going to outlaw fakes because you're selling somebody else's property yeah. under false pretenses. Yeah. Uh, or even if you're saying this is a fake Eames share, Doesn't it's still matter. a dead copy. Yeah, it's, it's you can't. It's, it's not yours to sell. But you know, they got shot down. In the architectural out. industry, copyrights reasonably well protected. Like I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I often read about there can be things where an architect of record takes over the design architect's mm -hmm. vision to carry it through and stuff, and they'll end up in um, court with a copyright issue because they've taken over or there's been a falling out and they've taken over the design and they're claiming it as their own, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but with furniture, it does seem the, it can be as recognizable that you couldn't really tell it apart from the original, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And there's seems to be no limit to stopping people for it. The best way. Now, if you're, if you're really familiar with, Let's say like an Eames plywood chair, the, mm -hmm. the wood low ply, lounge chair. What you look for in a real one is a detail that would prove 
too much bother for someone faking it. And Noel is brilliant at doing that, putting a detail in that fake people Just or so. the fake the copiers won't bother with it. And one of the things, even though there are tons of fake plywood chairs like yep. that, but one my favorite detail is the back support that goes back and underneath the seat. So mm -hmm. it's got this lovely little arc and it's made of lam laminated pieces of wood that have all been glued together. But the centerpiece, as it comes up the center and starts turning up the back, tapers off to a point and stops. And it's such a beautiful little detail. And if you see that, you got a real one because it's way too much bother yeah. to do yeah. the engineering on that piece to get it. To... And I think what a lovely thing to also, it's such an artistic flourish. Yes, it, it, it is were... the artist. It is the artist. Yes, yeah. and, yeah. and I think it's like the Eames weren't necessarily known for being flowery. Again, I'll use that mm -hmm. word about their designs. They're, it's industrial pieces. Mm -hmm. If you can find this at a hardware store for parts, all the better for them, which is their Eames storage units. A lot of the pieces came from hardware stores. The corner point, uh, points, all the screws and bolts yep. are yep. not specifically designed. Stupid now, though, because that's the, the downside, if I'm, I almost consider it tragic. All these designers that came out of that school, whether it's the post-war design mm -hmm. movement, especially in American ones, wanted to fill or offer to, the, to a, a market that didn't have a lot of money necessarily, or they were just middle-class people. And rather than giving them some mass-produced, not necessarily well-built or well-made stuff, certainly not well-designed, to give them something well-designed and well-made that's unique and different. And that yes. was their goal. But yes. even, in the, even when they were doing it in the day, it really wasn't. We think sort of, that's the nostalgia. We think everybody was out buying Eames chairs by the dozens because they were on, they were never cheap, no. but they were certainly more affordable then to the average and, consumer than they are now yes. by, by a long stretch. And I think well, too, because it's timeless design, but not timeless price. But if, for instance, <clears throat> there were no fakes in the market, then the volume of Eames chairs would probably, maybe say of original chairs, would be doubled. Yeah. That the because they're still made under license, so those chairs would be double or maybe triple the volume, um, out of the but the overall market size would come down, and then yeah. the affordability of them would probably come become more available as well. But also, yeah, that's certainly we would think common sense marketing, putting out mm. more, producing more, reduce the cost. Yes, yeah, slightly um, less, not necessarily a yeah. lot less, slightly less. Yeah. But here's the, here's the thing. When you buy an original, it's not just, it's not bragging rights. You come off a bit of a twat if you were saying, look at that original chair. How great mm -hmm. I am I to have original this and that. By the way, twat here may not be the same thing. There, here means an idiot. Okay, just, yeah. uh, just someone to, corrected just me on. Just to clarify. Just to clarify. It's just, anyway, I won't use that <laughs> word again. Uh, right. So, yeah. It could hop back and to the, Amsterdam. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the funny thing is, they, uh, here we have a chair that was made by Noel. It's a newer chair, right? Yeah. And here's the thing. They believe in their product so much that it was purchased used. But of their seven-year guarantee, that transfers to new owners. So if they someone sells their chair four years in, they got three years left, the new owner get the chair here, and we notice that there's something amiss with the arm. It's not, it's supposed to adjust three, three or four different ways, and it's just not working. Call the number, Next thing you know, I think it was two days later, a couple of guys, local reps of Knoll, show up with a new arm, no. slap it on, and leave with the old broken one. No, no charge. So I'm thinking, just imagine, you get home, you've got done the tedious thing of assembling your IKEA, whatever, yep. and there's something not working. 
So I'm calling Ikea, damn it. I'm going to get this fixed. Uh, and that is like, straight oh, to the top. Worry. Don't worry, ma'am. We're sending people right over right now to fix that for you. They'll be there no, before midnight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. What's happening is if you're half a mind to do so, collect the pieces and bring it back to Ikea. They'll give you a new one, maybe. But that's what you're buying with originals too. There was a weird thing. I thought a rather unfortunate thing is that Noel and Herman Miller merged. I should say oh, they right. call it a merger. Noel bought Herman Miller. And yep. one of my concerns about those companies in particular is they've always competed with each other. They've had their own side of the market. Herman Miller had a lot more of the home market. Noel had a more of the office market. And But Noel obviously, was Herman Miller was not doing as well and thought uh -huh. that the only way to keep the company really going well or properly was to merge or be bought out. <laughs> the weird, right. I should say, no way. but what I find sad about that is whenever you lose comp, when you lose competition, almost always you'll lose innovation because you need to enter the market with an edge. What are you innovating that gives your product, your chair, whatever you're selling? It's not technological, but just it needs to be better to compete because basically it's the same product. It's a chair. You can use it at your desk or whatever. No innovation. Yeah. There's no innovation if there's no competition, especially in a narrowing, increasingly less choice market. And I've used mm. this example before. Looking through some photos, and this is, I thought it was, I see tons of posed period era photos, like here's a husband and wife shopping for groceries. Yep. And they're clearly posed photos. But this one looked to be just like one of those candid shots of a couple. And what they're looking at are blenders in the store, probably circa 1960. And there had to be at least a dozen different blenders on the shelf. So they could choose. Is it going to be a Westinghouse? Is it going to be a Victor or, G what? or whatever it's going to be? Yeah. G which one is these is going to have the edge over the other. And next thing you know, GE finds out, why are we losing sales to these people? What do these people have? Oh, I see. Okay. We're going to need to We're up our game to that level. Yeah. yeah we've, we're going to have to catch up to these guys. But if there's two, one is from Amazon and the other one's from China, which is one and the same. No offense. That's a good thing. If you can go online and buy something that you need or even just want frivolously and get it the next day. Yes. Know? But yeah. there's often, there's, it's often been said, of course, is that convenience while you can afford it comes at a price to someone else, whether it's somebody working in dreadful conditions, whether at the Amazon mm -hmm. warehouse mm -hmm. or, and I'm saying I'm not dissing them, but, or some factory in China, most of the fake furniture in North America comes from Brazil. Really? Know, they have huge, yeah, they have, they're set up for it. They have a history of making furniture and things like that. Some of the most beautiful designs, modern designs I've ever seen come from Brazil. Whether it's Oscar Niemeyer, I'm going to hate saying these names, but yeah, just nice names. But they have some beautiful pieces. Some of them, though, as Hels Zalsputen, I'm not saying that correctly. I'm sorry. Um, what, whoever first. knows how to say it can correct us. Or they Jorge, yeah. Jorge Zalsputen. Okay. His stuff can be fairly simple sometimes, but rarely. It's, it's He thinks that every piece of furniture should be an event. It should be a showcase. It's just so crazy how they're just blocked together in such a way as to be, and they're usually overscaled, which is always fun. Yep. And they're certainly never not the center of attention in any room they go into. But yeah, it was one of my favorites. Lina Bobardi was an Italian who moved to Italy, sorry, moved to Brazil after the war to pursue a career as an architect, but she was incredible as a designer as well. It's an amazing design. So finally got a retrospective of her work just a couple of years ago. 
But also it's another point I would like to make is when I share architecture design, North American or European predominantly, is that I'm sharing a design history that was dominated by white men. Yeah, true. And that's something you always, you, I so many times go out and it's not just once a year on International Women's Day that I share here. Here's some, a few that we just happen to know. Obviously Florence Knoll was, a, there's a big, big names, Ray Eames, obviously the big yep. names. But there's also the people like Lena Bobardi, who most people may not know, who held her own, if you will, mm -hmm. because they did have the Ruth Asawa, um, which was a designer, but she moved into the arts, was an Asian American woman who, you know, that in working in the 1940s managed to get recognized and justifiably because she was brilliant. And they named her former art school after her, which I thought was cool. So do you uh, th think that is because women certainly weren't hugely in the workplace at that point too many stepford mm -hmm. wives etc cetera, etc cetera. and then now when you look at the marketplace now do you think that we're creating or there are people there creating the the value in the furniture or value in these pieces that will transcend like mid-century modern has i'm mid-century modern yeah, post-war, mm. like you described before, was a real rebirth. So it was yeah. like a it was like a ground zero start. Although it wasn't, but it was like a ground zero start. It was like everything yeah. had to be new. Everything had to be something else. And we yeah. probably haven't had a global event of anything to that magnitude other than COVID, but I don't know that it's going to produce that work. But yeah, here's, yeah. Yeah, what well, what it, caused the what was the incubator that that will create something new or that is that and woman coming into the into this design force I think is incredibly like strong and valuable. Here, okay, a good yeah. example of what happened in the car industry. Built in obsolescence was also designed in obsolescence with mm -hmm. American car manufacturers. Mm -hmm. Incredibly comp competitive. There was some. It was incredibly easy and affordable to buy a new car every year. Trade in your old one. Essentially, the used car industry was that was back alley. No one bought. Yeah. If you had some any means whatsoever, it was, it was a dirty you, business. Yeah, yeah. You got you get yourself a new car every year, and the way they made it do it, of course, was Ford's idea. Built in obsolescence, will change the design every year. So mm -hmm. just looking at what car you have, we know that you have a three year old car. Ooh, that's not cool. But one of the things they got incredibly more competitive. The designs got a little more outrageous uh -huh. throughout the fifties with exact, oh, yeah. exaggeration. Amazing. Yeah. And, yeah, just fun, exuberant, I, all that. I stuff. think the but, last so, era of interesting cars. Yeah. Oh, for me, 50s, it's a European. 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 60s of European cars. Yeah, I just yeah. I share them. I know they're not popular, but it's for me. No, okay. I agree. But, <laughs> I, I love them. And it was GM who thought, okay, what area can we compete in next? But you do know that more women are getting cars for doing right. the shopping and picking up right. the kids. So they hired... At a GM Tech Center, they, it's a beautiful aerosarin design compound. It's just amazing. Opened in 56. They hired a team of women to work on colors, interiors. Not just, not, it wasn't to feminize. It was to make it beautiful. Just make the interiors beautiful. Show us color and choice and textures and things like that. Also, women wear heels. Can we adjust yes. the pedals for that? Yes. Women have nails. Can we deepen the, the, the doorknobs for that, yeah. please? stuff like that it was things they were just so focused on, on competition 
the thoughtfulness of the design and but competition drove it but but design was their edge yes all cars basically in the u.s were big eight cylinders four doors two doors whatever but just with just the body they were working on that's fine you crazy with that but underneath and even in the interior was sometimes neglected Uh, not necessarily neglected but they just wanted something special inside Mm. general electric also hired women to design stoves in the Mm -hmm. 40s Mm-hmm. Like for, because they were going to be the end user. Suddenly they were everywhere designing end user products for you know the end user. Uh, but none broke out. Sorry, back it up. Very not few. Enough. Yeah, very few. Not enough. Yeah. Because they were also innovative. They had yeah. to be two. They had to work just as hard. Probably you know, harder. As a, yeah, well, probably harder. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Mm. Nana Ditzel was uh, in, in Denmark. One of my favorite designers. She's just an incredible designer. And she did something so few can do. I'll explain quickly. She started in the 40s. She went to the apprenticeship programs that were very male dominated. And she was not welcome. But she held her own. And she became easily one of Denmark's greatest designers. There's, she's up there with Finuel. Uh, Finuel, God. All the Gibson, yeah. Hans Wegner. She's up there with all of them. And she didn't. She earned it. She did something unique. No other, des- very few designers can pull this off. You look at Werner Panton, another Danish designer, mm-hmm. whose designs from the- were so not da- Danish. They were so playful and different, but always functional because they're Danish. Uh, so you get that style. And he was designing well into the 90s, like early 90s. But after you get to the 80s stuff, and you- it still looks like it's from the 60s, because everyone gets, they call it the 20-year plateau. That mm-hmm. those 20 years mm-hmm. of your career where you did your best work will still trail off, but everything you do after that will look a little dated. It won't be as good. And when you try to be different, it doesn't look nice at all. So you see it, you see it in everything from musicians to like everything. It happens everywhere. Yeah. Nana Nana Ditzel had a 60 year career. She died in 2015. I think I might be wrong. She might might have been, but every decade of her life, she was designing the best, cutting edge designs of the representative of those periods because she was as she once said i am always studying yeah. she was a constant student yeah. and she knew and as i'm going how is this 1956 ring chair the same as that peacock chair they're like two different worlds this is 1980s not postmodernism, but like definitively late 80s this is 1950s denmark as but it's from the same mind they're both exquisite designs but yeah she I again, not enough written about her. She's there's a lot of there is a lot written about her, just not enough. But she was oh god, just look at her early work, her experimental stuff. Her life represented her design. When she was pregnant, she started designing baby chairs, rockers, and high chairs. She when she had kids, right. she started designing children's furniture. So it, um, it followed her life story. Yeah, and if you look at her designs, I know exactly how old she was. I think almost yeah. she's right. she's in her seventies here. And she, even the, the Queen of Denmark, when she was giving a, pr- a presentation in early 2000s, insisted that the seating behind them on the on the podium, essentially, yep. if you not podium, but the, the upper area, was, they all had to be ring chairs by Nana Ditzel. So she was so well known that even the Queen knew who she was and what her it. designs were. I love it. Yeah. yeah but also amazing. prolific and uh, deliberate. As you said, yeah. she, every... She moved with the times constantly, yeah. and never hit her twenty-year plateau. She wouldn't I, let. She wouldn't let it happen. No, I, but even I, the, yeah, yeah. I worked in the clothing industry for years, and I used to 
watched the 20 year plateau happen to people. And I still to this day mm. have little giggles to myself and then ask myself if I'm falling into it. Yes, I'm taking my 13 year old daughter shopping yeah. and I'm in a shoe store and there's this guy lacing up a pair of palladium desert boots made in France. And he's lacing them up. And this is a hip. I'm in there with my daughter buying white yeah. Crocs yeah. or something like that. <laughs> and I'm I'm looking at it and I said to him, how old are you? And he said, 22. And I said, I was wearing those maybe 10 years before you were born. <laughs> and he said, what? And I said, I promise you, I was wearing those 10 years before you were born. <laughs> so I worked in the fashion industry. And he said, really? And I'm like, the same shoe. Exactly the same boot. Yeah, I've been uh, there. I, and just uh, that plateau thing. I went, do I buy another pair? No, no, really for that one. <laughs> because right, right now, uh, I remember in the 90s when that 70s throwback mm-hmm. stuff happened. Because mm-hmm. I was in art school. So not fake 70s. Let's hit the thrift thrift yeah, and the, get the, some real 70s. Because nothing breathes like polyester. You're sitting in class sweating. <laughs> this is too hot. And it's like, anyway, I remember because I had a bunch of really cool plaid pants. Yep. The plaid pants. Uh, I had flares. some too. Yep. Yeah. I think yeah. I had them. And I, re- yeah. I might and have I remember platform after- shoes at some point as well. I had Fluvog. I had John Fluvog, which, you know, because nothing says 90s, I've like got a pair of Fluvogs. But I love Fluvog shoes. But you don't <laughs> think it's a use acacia, I think acacia rubber. And yeah, one of the things right. about acacia rubber is that. I had a pair of white, like they had like four inch soles, not just heels, but soles made of this yeah, black right. rubber, white tops. And if it was wet outside and you went in to walk on terrazzo or tile floor, oh, the just... squeaking yeah, yeah, was yeah. so loud. It's like they could hear you coming a mile away. So well, you know, announce your entry. But I remember those plaid pants. I think even after this, the trend went away, I actually had them tailored to a regular straight leg. So they would be... Because <laughs> like so they were so comfortable and... But then I felt silly wearing them. And just recently, I was like a young, hip people walking past my now gentrified neighborhood. Yes. With half of them wearing almost identical looking yep. straight leg plaid pants. I was like, Jesus. Yeah. Again, I could say the same story. It's like 20 years, 25 years ago at least. Uh, exactly. And now it's like, how about a nice, comfortable black t shirt? There we are. Perfect. I love Because I actually had a. I had a jacket on earlier, like I had this jacket yep. on over top earlier. So I look a little more professional. I was like, no, it's not comfortable. Professional. <laughs> mm. yeah, no. <laughs> no, I can't pull that off. I, um, I, I love the fact that things come around. But what I love, like this renewed interest in things and, and fashion, I think it was Linda Evangelista said, it's so ugly, you've got to change it every six months. And, and yeah, yeah, yeah. fashion has this high cycle. When you're talking about, <laughs> I have people, clients who are like, they go, well, we just love this new thing. And I'm like, there's nothing new there, honey. That's, <laughs> I can tell you the reason it feels new is because if there's been three cycles of it, at least from the day it was invented or, yep. or first popularized. And there's, it's been through maybe two, three cycles and you're seeing it as new for the first time because you were born at the end of one of those cycles and your grandparents never bought it. Or your parents never yeah. bought it and you never got to see it. Uh, you see this, and we were saying earlier before we started recording about mid-century modern homes, and you were saying about taking, say, photographing a Frank Lloyd Wright home. 
And mm. this really stuck with me because having been in a few, I have some funny stories with them as well, but having been in a few, I get what you said. You said that there's all these timbers, there's all these, yeah. there's a Cherokee red floor, and suddenly yeah. to get a photo on this place, it's a sea of red. It's yep, it like it, it's got these challenges. Has anybody, has any other designer, like other than Frank, like we're on first name basis, Frank and I. <laughs> oh, um, you mean Frank? Yes. Yeah, yeah, Frank. Yeah, yeah, Frank. Call <laughs> <laughs> him Frankie. Um, <laughs> from time to time. Has anybody else had such a signature like that, that in the, in the mid-century modern that, mm-hmm. yeah, go for it. Robin Boyd, Robin Boyd, strong, Robin strong Boyd, signature. something about, first off, the, the Featherston house he designed with the open platforms was a stroke of genius, not safe at all, not even close. <laughs> I can't imagine how many people tumbled drunkenly over those edges, Many, but that was also a, a studio and it's hard to put railing up later. But what I look at when I look at Robin Boyd designs and actually it got me interested in Australian design, actually, because I can instantly now tell when the house is Australian. Absolutely. No pretense. There is a modesty of scale in most of them that makes mm-hmm. them very human. But there's also the strange love of juxtaposition that you just don't see anywhere else. Okay, we're going to put some brick here. This will be a painted wall. And this is, will be a different type of stone with a floor here, like different type of material for the floor. And you go, that's a mess. And you look at it, no, this isn't working here. It's a working bush mess. Houses and, yeah, it's a working, but bush houses, houses in what you call your bush, we would call it the country, essentially. I think, yes, here. yep. And the thing about it, you learn quickly about Australia, and in particular New Zealand as well, less examples in New Zealand, but some great examples in New Zealand, is that there was a show called Greatest Houses or the World's Greatest Houses or Incredible mm-hmm. Homes, I don't mm-hmm. remember, British show. And you had this British architect, established British architect, now in his, at that, at then in his 50s, travels to New Zealand and Australia, and he says, this is an entirely unique architectural vocabulary. It doesn't exist anywhere else. It answers a very local. If, if their solutions are very local, the problems are very local. It's the solutions they were providing. It wasn't just, for instance, this is shelter, three bedrooms. They're a master of multi-levels. Or is to me amazing. There's a house in Brisbane, actually. Oh, my God. I forget the architect. But it, it operates on two levels, but not two floors. It's just wonderfully done. Uh, so that you can sit anywhere and see everything and still f- feel like a sense. I haven't been there, but when you get to the bedrooms, it's a separate area. And they want the living spaces to be open human spaces that everybody is connected somehow. And, but what I find interesting also is that when they were like, you had the Featherstones designing furniture, for instance, which is quite amazing. And of course, Australia, it's cheaper to make it there often than to have it shipped in when it comes Mm -hmm. to furniture. Mm -hmm. They're very much on, you're an island and a continent apart. And so I love things like you get not just unique wildlife and unique plant life, you get unique designs. Mm-hmm. The Australian Pavilion uh, at here in Montreal's World Fair in 1967 didn't look like much from the outside. An inverted parallel, an inverted parallelogram, not parallelogram, but uh, whatever this is. Unique, little Australian crest above the door, fountain outside. Unique because they had a fountain that was built in rocks, which you'd never seen before. It's kind of thought school. Yeah, it was right. just a pile of rocks with water shooting out of it. It was just yeah. not a grandiose framed in pit with a fountain. No, just a neat pile of rocks. Pretty interesting I for a country can... that's short on water yeah. as well. But yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you get, you get inside and there's two things. First off, it's done in four quadrants. 
and with these beautifully arced beams for each con with a light well coming down the center mm -hmm. of the four separate areas that illuminates between the spaces of the two closest beams. And I'm going, that's beautiful. And at night, it's amazing as well. But in the daytime, it's this use uh, cruciform of just daylight coming into yeah. the space. And I think, okay, this is going to be visited by tens of thousands. First of all, there were 51 million visitors to, for the six months. So how many visited wow. Australia? Turns out it was very popular. Double the population get, of Australia. So you go up the spiral staircase from the entrance where you get your passport stamp because that's the, they introduced the system for all the pavilions having a passport, which they still use today. And you go up a spiral staircase and you have to stand on this foot shoe washer to get your shoes brushed off and wiped off because they decided in a public space to put deep pile of white carpeting throughout. <laughs> <laughs> but sprouting, but sprouting out of all this lovely shag, are these beautiful, curvaceous, cylindrical Featherston chairs, Grant Featherston, yep. Grant and Mary Featherston chairs, with speakers in them, and yeah, they call it. Of course, it's a bilingual country, so some they were all blue, but some had a green cushion on them, and some had a, a yellow cushion on. No, sorry, no, I think I don't remember the white cushion, so. One color was English when you sat in the chair. The other color was French if you sat in the chair, which I told you in the interest. If you want it in French, yeah. please sit in the white cushion. And that's the thing. But they got a taste for it because the next big World's Fair was 1970. And they decided, you know what? A giant upside down concrete pyramid suspended by a single arm. Let's go for it. <laughs> let's, let's knock this uh, out of the park. I tell you one thing, though. I did go to a World's Fair, the first one ever in Shanghai in 2010. And one of the pavilions despite the incredibly long lineup, was the Australian Pavilion. Quick what? post note on that one. And to go around all the floors, you had to go through this yellow polka-dotted glass tube that made you feel like you were a hamster, right? Yeah. But it affected, but what they hadn't considered, they could not have possibly considered, that while you're in that under the sun, remember you put on like a colored filter and you take it off, you just, your view is discolored mm -hmm. for a mm -hmm. while. So whenever you went, after going through because it's slow moving. So yep. you're in that tube for about 10 to 15 minutes until you get to the floor of the exhibits. And the minute you walk in, none of these yeah. colors look right. Yeah, because you've got wrong. such Why? a yellow hue, your eyes have hued out. So they're, at the end, they had a giant barbecue restaurant because everyone was encouraged to have a restaurant. Um, and of course, Australia had thing. a barbecue. Prawns. <clears throat> and my favorite thing was a men at work cover band. <laughs> <laughs> the great land from uh, down the, under. Uh, and one thing, one of the things I loved about New Zealand's pavilion was incredibly elegant. It was small, had a beautiful garden. You, when you left that one, it wasn't a barbecue or a minute work cover band, but a beautifully landscaped garden with mostly Australian plant life. Yeah, uh, which I understand later on was a nightmare for uh, to get through China because they're very protective over their local species. So a lot of arrangements had to be made. So that everything had to be cleared away and to destroyed actually get the after. plants there. Yeah. And what they did for New Zealand was they wanted to show things. You know what? It's New Zealand is a little conservative and maybe a little bogan, whatever. But it's not just that. But they showed that there's a guy standing next to his car, rednecking it, if you want to call it. And it's still perfectly placed in the, in the photo that mm -hmm. backlit photos as the slides are changing. And they had music, local music, like a lot of different music playing, indigenous music. And you simply just walked around this sinewy winding, continually elevating 
uh, like. tour of Australia and wasn't pushing anything on you, wasn't trying to get you to do business there, as some of the Philippines would do. Uh, they'll always have an economic rap or something. Sure. And then when you leave, it's you can't believe because you're on the roof and it's an angled thing. So it's stepped landscaping all the way down to the exit. And it's just, wow, it's a really elegant, super elegant pavilion. Yeah, wow. wow. I love that. I love it. I love yeah. I've never it been was, to uh, a World's Fair. I've never done that. It's something to put on the list. Neat. Yeah. 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 But... I went to the camp. Yeah, I went to the Canada Pavilion, and it was weird outside, but really cool. It was Faceted Timbers, mm -hmm. giant name. Mm -hmm. And we waited in line for three hours. I'm not yeah. joking, to get in. And uh, when we got in, we showed the, like, uh, the, the guy was we were talking. They asked me where we were from. I said, oh, we're from Canada. Yay. And he says, you didn't have to wait in line. There's a guy for you. If you're Canadian, you just skip <laughs> the line. <laughs> you can come right in. Yeah. You come on in, yeah. You've got, your passport. You've got your passport. You've got your passport. So it was fun. But it was eclectic. It was like it was constant activity. And what was weird, every pavilion, including Australia, has a film. Like yeah. you go sit in this little, yeah. in Australia, it was like yeah. sit in a circle and watch a little film. And it's usually uplifting and it's multicultural and mm -hmm. musical and all that stuff. And we're like, what's Canada going to do? And Canada, like a lot of Western countries, we have a lot, large Asian population, which they played up. Mm -hmm. in visuals in slow-mo frame freeze frame visuals but it was so depressing sounding and looking and the mood oh, of it really? was like after that eclectic interactive yeah get on a bike yeah. and cycle across the country and look at these moving glass tubes yeah with pictures in them and it was like constant and it was non-stop and everybody was really loving it because it was like playful and fun and yeah. it wasn't serious at all and next thing you know this oh yeah and we see the filmmakers at the end is like quebec Fuck. <laughs> It was like dreary <laughs> Quebecois filmmakers, man. I wonder what happens in that because somewhere there's a committee that builds a camel if they get it wrong, and somewhere in in the other in another culture there's somebody who gets their run and sticks firm to where they're going and creates something that engages people and takes them somewhere that was never expected. And yeah, I think yeah, I, I've I've got a question about mid-century modern that I really I, I was in I've been to Palm Springs many times and mm -hmm. I want you to break down those different styles of mid-century modern architecture in Palm Springs and how it I want to say doesn't get homogenized into nowadays I have this issue <laughs> probably one of many but anyway this particular <laughs> issue is designed because of the internet is homogenized i can look mm -hmm. on your mcm daily and i can look there and go oh okay there's that idea i'll mesh all those together and i'll do something with it or i can go be inspired by something and go wow i love the way that piece was but it's a tiny piece of something that sparks a yeah. thought and creates something I see that we are now building homes that are the same home because we can control climate the same internally. We can yeah. we're building the same home in Wyoming as we're building in Toronto, as we're building in um the desert in Australia, as we're building on the waterfront in Sydney. Um we yeah. could unplug any of them and put them anywhere and the few climatic tweaks and stuff maybe some different glass we can change it 
back into what it was. So I go, homogenized design is boring. Our trends are becoming global, not local. Yeah. These kinds exactly. of things. And but take me to Palm Springs and tell me about the I think there's five. Is there five styles? And you there tell are, me. There are actually, okay. You're talking about desert modernism, which is uniquely yeah. not necessarily uniquely Californian, because Northern California has its own, its own vernacular. But certainly desert, Arizona, New Mexico, yep. but certainly Palm, Palm Springs, Southern California, desert California. As First off, it was one of those places, Palm Springs was a sleepy little community really up until the 50s, maybe mm-hmm. a little earlier. Um, but it became, there was this thing called New Hollywood. They yep. were the younger people. They were the Rock Hudsons and Steve McQueens, whatnot. And they just didn't want, they didn't care for celebrity. They didn't care for the, they don't mind celebrity, but they wanted a weekend place. They just they wanted didn't want to hang out. Yeah, didn't almost say in LA. Just one, so Palm Springs became the place right up until the seventies. And I think the person who killed it for a while because it was a rebirth was Bob Hope when he built right. that mess. John, yep. even John Lautner disavows that one because it got so messed with in the design. <laughs> Other people messed with it. It's the way yeah, that right. I'm sure Jorn Utzon looked looked at the final Sydney Opera House and said, "That's not what I designed." Um, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't quite I, what I, I had in I, mind. <laughs> I loved it. Tim mentioned keep it keep it simple. He did a tribute song for it for the fiftieth. Big fan of Tim Mention as well. But yeah, the desert awesome. modernism thing is amazing. Desert modernism is interesting because it had to answer several different problems, offer solutions to several different problems. Donald Wexler, for instance, they called the Man of Steel because he preferred steel framing for homes because it was he, anything inorganic, stone, steel. Um, uh, brick, for instance, anything inorganic because it would weather much better. Yes, uh, it, w- it would insulate much better than wood, for instance. So his homes have a uniquely, I want to say, rectilinear, angular style. He, his famous signature is the folded zigzag roof line. You'll mm-hmm. see that on quite a few of his mm-hmm. designs. That's not a design element. It is, obviously, ultimately. But it allows the sun to only sit at any point on half the roof so that it doesn't heat up as much. So, wow. So the one side will always be away from the sun. So as cute and as ultimately Palm Springs, iconography, uh, iconic of Palm Springs, yep. it's a very practical engineering solution as he saw it. But it would have also it, given it a lot of strength in that whole exactly, um, structure yeah, yeah. as well, well the, yeah, for the, spanning and the, stuff. The, yeah. Folded plate seems to be making a bit of a comeback, actually, uh-huh. in some newer architecture because of global warming, maybe. Yeah. But, but one of the things that you find in Palm Springs, which is, again, just again, an icon of Palm Springs are the windscreen, the breeze blocks. Yes. Breeze blocks are interesting because they were done to, they were basically done to keep the sun at a minimum. Sunlight, yes. they were put in front of windows quite often, but they became such a cool architectural feature where suddenly the style of breeze block becomes decorative, whether mm-hmm. it's simple squares, circles, mm-hmm. little triangular arrow shapes. And I think that's cool. But also you get to uh, Palm Springs, for instance, you get to the more lavish spreads. I always call them golf club houses because they look like they'd be a great clubhouse for a golf course. Uh, case in point, of course, is we call the Frank Sinatra House, uh-huh. uh, which he stayed in. Stuart Williams? I Twin, is that one? Twin Palms. Uh, and, Twin, yeah, Palms. Twin Palms. Yeah. Yeah. And that one, for instance, gives us a wonderful look. They all have it. But this one shows us a glimpse into the future of what open concept living was going to be like in the living spaces. The idea, for instance, is that bedrooms now become places to recline or relax and sit, whether it turned out practical. I think one of us, one of the houses in Palm Springs, I love this house so much. Hunt, I think it's the architect. Showcase, it's actually one of one of the it's in my book, one of the photos of it. But in this massive rosewood paneled on one end, 
bedroom. There's seating area. There's a fireplace, a little sunken lit fireplace. And there's a cabinets on the side mounted to the wall. Mounting to the wall was lovely because A, it made it easier to clean up under them, but also it, appeared, it makes the space, while the room didn't need it, mounting things to wall make the place look a little bit bigger. And um, it also lightens but, the it lightens the feel of it. The floor extends. Yeah. yeah. And my favorite thing about the cabinet, some there are drawers here. Over here there's a lift lid. You open it up, there's a sink with a tap for water and a bar. Because it's your bedroom. Why not? Why not? <laughs> Why not? Who knows when you're gonna need a martini? <laughs> yeah, you're entertaining. Who knows how? Maybe you just finished up a key party and want to send off send off your guests. I was going to bring up. I was going to bring up. So the perfect Palm Springs house for a key party. And, I think um, I've formulated a take on it <laughs> on key party. Right. No. Okay. Here, here's the thing. I think we live in such socially stayed as as chaotic as it seems sometimes. As far as design and housing and, and even for, for affordable clothing, for that matter, it's incredibly gray stayed time. Mm-hmm. Not, mm-hmm. Some, not too much out there. I look at people. Like, look at, I, I know. Oh. And it's, car, cars used to be that thing of joy. Just to, I'm a car person. I, mm-hmm. And I hate what's happening to car. What's happening, yeah. I should say. But the thing is, okay, people see a house that looks slightly groovy. It's mm-hmm. got orange or green carpeting. It's meant for entertaining. That's all it is. That's this room. Is this is the living room? This is we're going to live here, and this is the family room where the TV is. That's usually the deal. And but the living room is where you go to entertain and have friends over. And every time people see that because they're that's so foreign to them, that you yeah. have space, a groovy space dedicated just for entertaining, to have people around that were somewhat that that obviously the only thing that they can equate it with is key parties. And I think it's I think it's funny. Right, it's, it's and I'm not saying they didn't have key parties. Probably did, but probably seventies, sixties. Well, this 70s. was the thing, wasn't it? We had contraception. We had all these things. There was a whole lot of love yep. and freedom that was out there, mm-hmm. and I think, especially Palm Springs, again, because it was like a, a Hollywood escape. It was like so. Yep. Not everybody could see what everybody was doing. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have anything like that to record people. Yep. It gave they're grateful up. for it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Different for our kids that will grow up in this other era oh, where they'll be ungrateful for it at some point. Um, there's going to be there's proof gonna, of everything. There's going to be proof of everything, yeah. And if you did, your friend didn't capture it, the city did because they've got cameras on you too. Uh, it, yeah. It's this thing that, that, as you say, like the key parties or whether they were key parties or just made for entertaining, people actually... Yeah wanted to make congregations in their homes they we were talking earlier about the revolution of having a bar in your house and yeah, the yeah. sort of evolution of people moved to the suburbs and you explained this to me I had no idea why we suddenly had bars but they moved to the suburbs and suddenly the nearest bar was 20 minutes away so then you put a bar in your house and again we're looking for places to build community so people would do yeah. that again but we've just gone through a revival of the bar in the house, mm-hmm. like we're going through the revival of whiskeys, gins, tequilas right now. The, these are the drink revivals that are they each comes to their own in a new space and it becomes mm-hmm. boutique and then it becomes mass again. We've got a lot of, I would say innovation might not be the right word, but we've got a lot of innovation in that space. So back to Palm Springs. Okay. And not just key parties. 
are the ones that look like the Flintstones? Those are, I know, I know the kind you're talking about. And that is straight out of the, I always call it the Eichler book, where Eichler wanted to build in, in the Bay Area of San Francisco. There are newer Eichlers based on the original designs now in Palm Springs. So he never did originally build anything there. Right. Now, what I, the thing about those, the, the, the Flintstones ones, comes from, oh, there's two there's two ways of going about it. For instance, there's a school, obviously there's a ball house school that for, uh -huh. talks about minimum, whatever. Uh -huh. But that's not exactly it mm -hmm. when you get there. Because when you're looking at those, the Eichler movement, for instance, was how do we create design, unique design, where that people could just make small suggestions or options for those homes. For instance, can we have a flat roof that's off-centered a little bit with a heave that's a, with a, an overlap that, or sorry, an overhang that's slightly too big for shade, which is good, practical, but unique. Also, they, with Eichlers, with some exceptions, obviously, but there's the flat roof ones that sort of look like they deal in and they're trading. Stock and trade is asymmetry. The idea is that the door yes. is always off-center. Yes. The yeah. roof may not be, but those houses... Again, okay, what happens when a place becomes, it happened in Fire Island in the 50s and 1960s, where a place suddenly becomes popular with a group of people as a retreat. And you'll find suddenly there's, whatever there's opportunity, you'll find architects, right? But whenever, <laughs> there's, an when, no, but whenever there's an opportunity to go unfettered, you'll yep. find, definitely find architects. Yep. So with Palm Springs, they're all coming up with their own solutions to the heat. But also it can get quite cold in Palm Springs. People often see Palm Springs homes and go, why the hell do they have a fireplace? I know. Because it can, can be get freezing. cold at night. Yeah. Yeah. It can get, and it snows. It's desert. It's Springs. desert behind yeah, the day. Very cold. I've, I've been out there in the and winter course, and gone, man, we're chilly, yeah. man. We can't sit outside. Yep. The pool is the unnecessary thing. Mm -hmm. The pool, but also it's a social thing. Ever notice how big some of the pools are for, in relation to the size of the house in Palm yeah. Springs? Yeah. It's, it's, there's a weird disproportionate. Okay, a pool for 20, a house for three. Okay, yep. I got it. But that's because that's what you do. You're going to hang out and swim and eat, and that's the thing. What I like about Palm Springs, though, is that essentially, if you're looking at desert modernism, there's similarities in all of them. Design differences, for sure. But they're all answering, as they say, design is answering a problem, a solution to a problem. They're all doing that, but they're totally unique at it, which is what I don't get. Those houses being built and designed differently next door to each other create these unique neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. That that's that is not an undoable today, you know what I mean? But it would appear it's, to be. Just for instance, okay, housing crisis throughout throughout a lot of places, especially in mm -hmm. Canada, not especially, but oh, yeah, certainly in Australia Canada. as well, and, yeah. England. So, I've, I understood that the serious building in, in Sydney, which was they fought to save and rather than tear, mm -hmm. tear down, was basically social housing that gave tenants a view of the Sydney Opera House. Like, what an idea! And there you find people at the time, maybe they don't like it, but it's, it's good for them. And these days, people would be offended by that concept. These people aren't paying for these and they get a view. They should be punished for their poverty. But <laughs> and punished they will be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the funny, and, and, they, and I was actually Tim Ross in the interview said they sold shortly after they decided it was going to be renovated into condos. They sold the penthouse for $35 million. Yeah. Just like right? that. Yeah. yeah. And the yep. poor people are going, shit, I only had 34. Okay. Yeah, um, exactly. We couldn't but, scrape it together out of the family. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys. All right. To the suburbs. Yeah. Out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. I know it's a long <laughs> train Anyways, ride, but that would stop you from coming back. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I like about Palm Spring. And here's the funny thing. I've never been. 
Really? I've been invited many times, to be a few times, not many times, to be a part of the Modernism Committee. It just wasn't good for me or something else was happening. I have to get down there. I have to see all these things I've talked about, written about. What about the Tiki Hut then? The Tiki House? Okay, that's the subgenre. It's not modern, obviously. There is influence to Tiki, mm-hmm. but like any trend, like what happens? Is there a style of food that's popular in, in Montreal right now? Korean barbecue is all the rage, as is Japanese barbecue. Yeah. And thankfully, because I love both. Yeah, it's great. And I had the pounds to prove it. But the thing is, in I don't. Okay, Hawaii was about to become a state. And everyone was fascinated. It's like mm-hmm. the first time in most people's memories that we get a brand new state out of this. That's cool. And from that Polynesian culture that they were, people just, hey, we got a place we can visit that's tropical. We don't need to bring our passports. Airplanes are offering cheap flights to there. And suddenly, like they were being, it was being advertised as the ideal, that's what it became the ideal honeymoon vacation. Yep. Let's all go to Hawaii. Yeah. And people got there. And suddenly, what was normal as far as the fruity drinks, the, Hawaiian lake around the neck, yep. which became you know touristy thing afterwards. But they were suddenly seeing Polynesian food, Polynesian beverages, stuff like that. And some places catered to that by making the tiki huts, the style of the actual Polynesian yes. huts. And, and they brought well, some enterprising people, brought that back with them and says, I'm going to start my own tiki bar. And next thing, it was a craze throughout North America. There's still one here in Montreal, up on St. Catharines. I went to a brilliant one in Austin, Texas last in, sorry, in February, March, an yeah, absolutely yeah. brilliant one in Austin. And the drinks came as in boats and carved coconuts <laughs> and like crazy things with smoking heads Bar- and <laughs> just incredible. And and it's like the Western bar thing. You can open a tiki bar anywhere and it will survive. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether it's under snow or underwater I, or wherever, it'll survive. Because if we are, I love contemporary design, modern. I always make sure that, I don't make sure for me, what works in contemporary design, if there's a con- a connection with earth somehow, mm-hmm. it's got to be earthy. Not, some natural materials can't just all, all be concrete. Though I've mm-hmm. seen some beautiful spaces done in concrete. Mm-hmm. But what I like about that is that we see modern restaurants and they're, it's okay. I'm supposed to enjoy a meal in this place. I like your lights. It's like, that's fine. It's about the design. Whereas Tiki, obviously to an, ex- to an nth degree, yes. makes it a about the theater of going out, the theater, good food, even if it's not great food. No, the theater is enough. Like, yeah. They want you to, this is a playground for adults. Come on, mm-hmm. let's enjoy this. Mm-hmm. And next thing, by the way, speaking of home bars, go to any flea market and you will see 1960s, 50s, tiki style cups and glassware, togan, yeah. Like, yeah. carved head yeah. that was meant for your home bar. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so you get a, your I, own have tiki a, drink. I do have a few. <laughs> just yeah. just a little confession there and uh, uh, no and it's funny i've been to a tiki bar once years ago and first off it gave me the worst headache the next day that was the bar just, right it, you, yeah because you're not yeah yeah because you, you're not just there's also food but you're young you're out drinking with people <laughs> and you don't know the fact that's got gin in it that's got rum in it and now you're mixing all the boozes and maybe <laughs> quite a bit of it yeah as well yeah, yeah. I, I, and it's clever cleverly disguised with pineapple juice I re- yes, exactly. And coconut, like coconut yeah, flavoring. Exactly. And yeah, I really enjoy Palm Springs as a place I've been many times and I've been around Modernist Week as well. And a, mm-hmm. a number of times there, I've just taken tours there, like gone on a tour and really enjoyed just the different styles of architecture as well as. How, yeah. 
it, it's a style though. They're, yeah, it's playful. There's one unique style. Yeah, yeah. It's the colorful doors that they. Uh, and the, there's the, the, the bright yellow, the bright green, the bright whatever yeah, door. The, yeah, aqua door. And, and my one of the things I love, and if I may be mistaken in the name, but I think it's called Paladidian style. If you think of a Roman villa, yes, that has this col- colonnades along the front yep. and a walkway up to the front door. Yes, you sometimes covered walkway up to the front door. It's like you're straight out of a Roman villa. Like uh, it's just insanely, but it's done to a modern style. But there's always a hint. There's always a slight hint of the Doric or the Corinthian or the Ionic yes. column in there. And it's like, you could try that in a suburb and you'd be laughed out of town. But try it in Palm Springs. It's right at home. Thank you. Thank you for being here. What and is it? And there's one I. Was well, it one drive through like by Gianni Versace and suddenly they yeah. popped up behind them? And it's just, but something also not great happened in Palm Springs. And I'm not going to mention the designer's name or the house. Great house, very big house. Uh, and he decided, it was in disrepair. A lot of them, they get abandoned, yep. not abandoned, but sitting empty. And he fixed it up and, but began the great whiteout, as I call it. Right. Yeah. And the, the great whiteout was, you can do it in some degree and it works. And sometimes it's absolutely necessary because if your design calls for a certain look, and but what happened was people started doing it to flip houses. They weren't calling in designers to say, I would like a much more neutral palette, less wood, for instance, I can't say why they would want less wood. Maybe the wood is stained and it's much too, too expensive to replace, easier to paint. Mm-hmm. And, but, and that's if you're even from a practical point of view, but the great whiteout was people going and getting the cheapest cabinets for kitchens, stainless steel always, because frankly, they're cheaper than colored yeah. cabinets and or appliances. And literally hosed everything down white, all white and gray bathrooms, mm-hmm. because they feel that somehow, and these are not knockoff or generic Palm Springs homes. These are known architects. There was a cache of well, uh, constantly working architects in Palm Springs and doing a lot of good work. And suddenly they go in there with no regard at all. And if you're selling it for a profit, get it. There's oh. a lesser house you could have bought and flipped. Yeah. But it's bothersome. I've, I knew that there was one person that I actually was in contact with, not in Palm Springs, but in, in California, who was going through the painstaking process of restoring her home from one of those things. From a great white house. Wow. And she said it is, it was incredibly a lot of hard work it'd be be soul destroying as well because there was so much by the architects who all created their names there and worked there they actually put a lot of love and care and passion into what they were creating and for people to live in and to express those materials and stuff like that yeah Mm. i tell you Mm. what i like about them too is as busy as they were and as constantly working as some of them were as far as the sudden huge expansion yeah. of, of Palm Springs, uh, even like into the suburbs and creating new neighborhoods within Palm Springs. They never phoned it in. They always brought their game, if you will, if you want to say yeah. that. Yeah. There's never an example, and I, I'm going to use this name again, but there's, okay, William William Crystal mm-hmm. designed mm-hmm. several, just his work, and you'll know his work because check out that butterfly, butterfly roofs, just mm-hmm. such a Palm Springs. Mm-hmm. There's, no there's no name for that except Crystal. That's, yeah, that's right. it. That's what that that his name is what that is. And he lived there right up. Like he died like almost 100 years old, I think, when he was. But he, every day he walked through his neighborhoods. And what was amazing is no two houses. And the greatest thing, my favorite thing is the Modernism Week bus tour, the open roof bus. Yep. yep. 
they would whenever he was seen, like the bus would stop and they'd have a chat. He'd just go up and talk with them and stuff like that. And say, yeah, this is one of mine. We just went up in 1957. I remember the original owner. She wanted this and the husband wanted that. And they couldn't How agree. And, How wonderful. and it was like, and he lived there. Like that was his home as well. And even Donald Wexler only died yeah. six years ago, I think. Yeah. He ended long. his career making paper. Yeah. Making very intricate paper sculptures. Just 3D paper, very detailed, multiple, sometimes thousands of individual pieces of paper. Isn't that amazing? Like, DC has so much information and so much content. The guy is like a deep mine and he studies mid-century and design and the interior design part. Like He's like a, a student of it on a daily basis. And as you can hear from what we've got so far, it's an incredible journey. Now, one of the things that we covered in there, which I really loved, was around the Palm Springs thing, the great whiteout, and just what happened that with that, and how people got really resourceful about either flipping places, which probably at the detriment, and then the other ones who really dug in and said, we need to bring this stuff back as it was and protect the legacy, which I think is really incredible. There's so many points in there. So anyway, DC and I went on from this point and we spoke some more and we've got a two-part podcast. So you've got about half of it now and then we're going to launch into a second half. So if you stay tuned for next week, that will be the second half. I thank you all for listening. I would encourage you please to subscribe to the podcast and also to send feedback on what you loved what you thought was really special, what made a difference, and what you learnt. And if there's questions, DC would be more than happy to answer them, and so would I. So please, if you could, hit subscribe, and then also send us your feedback. We'd love it. Thank you for listening. Hi, guys. I'm Adrian. I'm your host of Talk Design Podcast. I started this podcast a couple of years ago, and in doing it, my aim was to talk to amazing design people, creative minds, people who I could learn from and hopefully you could learn from. This was a big part of my whole reasoning for starting the podcast. We've cracked over 80 episodes, and we've done two homes tour specials for the AIA Austin in Texas which have been really great fun, talking just specifically about houses. We've talked to HGTV stars. We've talked to building designers, interior designers, architects, business coaches, and some inspired characters along the way. People who have captured my imagination and their creative output and gone, huh, these people would bring a story to somebody else and maybe inspire them to go a little further with what they're doing as well. So I wanted to reach out and ask you all for some advice because you are the guys who tune in and listen and subscribe and I really appreciate that. So I want some advice from you. If you guys would be happy to share with me A, what you like best so that I can better direct what we cover as content and then also, if there's things you want to solve, what are the three biggest things you would like information on? What are those kind of keys so that I can look 
and go, okay, let's find somebody who speaks specifically on these points and get some depth of information back to you that would be really useful in your business or in your life or in your home, whichever one it would be. So if I could ask you to do that, I would be forever grateful if you would share with me just through the email based on the Talk Design website, which is www.talkdesign.show. If you could just reach out via that email and say to me, hey, this would be a really great subject for me, for my business or for my family or for my home or for the way I want to see life. I would love to be able to support you guys and find those people that we could talk to that would bring that to you. So thank you very much for taking the time to listen. I so appreciate the fact that you listen to the podcast. It makes it all the more fun when I get messages from you to say, hey, this inspired me. I had somebody who sent me one the other day that said, your podcast, and we were talking on a certain subject, it was a game changer for me. It was a game changer in how I viewed how I was looking at what I was doing with my design and what was going to come from that. So these things make it all the more worthwhile. So please, if you could tell me top three things that would be useful to you, I would love to support you guys in delivering that. Thank you and thank you for being a listener. Take care, have a wonderful day, evening, wherever you are, whatever it is. Cheers, Adrian, over and out.